love to poke holes in this trope of the perfect mother because we are we are not but we're just as lovable for our imperfections this week on interstates wfiu's yael cassander talks with novelist jacinda townsend about her latest novel mother country it's about two mothers on either side of the atlantic and the daughter they come to share we also have mother's rules from poet yaley kamara that's all coming up on interstates from wfiu in bloomington indiana with me Alex Chambers. Stay with us. One version of the story is that it was all the Jarvises. Anna Jarvis had watched her mother Anne develop Mother's Day work clubs in the late 1850s to help reduce infant mortality. Then the Civil War started, and Anne Jarvis's public health work in the service of mothers shifted to caring for wounded soldiers on both sides of the war. After the war, Anna's mother Anne started a Mother's Friendship Day for soldiers and their families from both sides. Anne died in 1905. After that, Anna campaigned tirelessly to bring her mother's vision to life, a day to memorialize and honor mothers. In 1914, her efforts paid off. Woodrow Wilson signed the new federal holiday into law. So, it might be surprising But just a few years later, Anna Jarvis was out protesting Mother's Day. It had gotten too commercial. People were buying their mother's greeting cards instead of writing letters. They were buying jewelry, delivering candy. About the candy, Anna said, Candy! You take a box to mother and then eat most of it yourself. Anna Jarvis's second campaign against the commercialization of Mother's Day was less successful. This year, 2022, Americans are predicted to spend $31.7 billion on the holiday. Jarvis held tightly to her identity as the founder of Mother's Day. She insisted that the idea for the day had come solely from her own mother, Anne. But Anne herself had also been inspired by Julia Ward Howe, and Howe's reasons for celebrating mothers were a lot more pointed. Howe spent her life fighting for abolition and women's suffrage, and in 1872, she called for a Mother's Day for peace. She was calling for women to rise up against war, for mothers to refuse to let their sons be trained to hurt others, to make society itself more hospitable to mothers, children, and, by extension, everyone else. There are probably other origin stories to be told about Mother's Day, but I want to point out one more thing about this one. Anna Jarvis got pretty obsessed with fighting the holiday's commercialization. She spent out her life savings. In 1948, she was protesting it and got arrested for disturbing the peace. She spent her final years in the Marshall Square Sanitarium in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Where did the money come from to pay for her time in the sanitarium? from the deep pockets of the floral and greeting card industries. Maybe they were feeling generous. Maybe they were just appreciative. This is Interstates, by the way. I'm Alex Chambers, and as you've probably guessed, we are replaying our Mother's Day episode. 
Even though it's not Mother's Day, I want to give a shout out to anyone who does the work of mothering. Whether you're a biological mother, a stepmother, a grandmother, or you don't identify as a mother at all, but you do the hard work of caring for other people, making sure they're okay. We're going to turn now to a conversation with Jacinda Townsend about her new novel, which tackles the subject of motherhood from two perspectives on different sides of the world. Townsend was associate professor of English at Indiana University when her 2014 novel, St. Monkey, was published. She's now Helen Zell Visiting Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Michigan. Published on May 3rd, Townsend's new novel, Mother Country, alternates between the story of Shannon, a black woman in Louisville who's got her share of Western world struggles, and Surya, a Mauritanian woman who's got her share of non-Western struggles. The book refuses to take sides. Jacinda Townsend spoke with WFIU's Yael Cassander. I would just love to say it's a great honor to have you, Jacinda Townsend, and thank you for being here for WFIU today. Thank been, you so much for having me. Your novels have both been really warmly received. Your uh, debut, Saint Monkey, in 2014, won the Janet Heidinger Kafka Prize and the James Fenimore Cooper Prize for Historical Fiction, and also the uh, 2015 Honor Book of the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. And already, uh, your new novel, Mother Country, uh, just being published this month, is already receiving glowing reviews from Booklist, Publishers Weekly. There are probably more. Yes. Yes, there are, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and there will be more by the time this airs. So um, yes. I'm, I just want to congratulate you. Well, way, thank you. Way to thank go. you. I think that before we get into the books, I'd really love for our listeners to get acquainted with you. So maybe you can give us a sort of a thumbnail picture of your journey. Sure. So I uh, grew up actually in Kentucky, um, in South Central Kentucky. I left um, when I was 16 and spent the rest of my life trying to get back, actually. Um, I got very close. I got to Bloomington, Indiana, and um, spent almost 10 years there. And, uh, you know, those were my favorite years. We actually, we came back even. We came back to Bloomington. We bloomeranged back um, after moving to California and, and had some more kind of favorite years in Bloomington. I I kind of traveled the route of Odysseus to get to this book and and I'm so fortunate because it was only through a series of coincidences that I ever got to Morocco in the first place. I had been a a lawyer and a broadcast journalist in New York City. From there I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop. You know, after that, everything turned magical. The first thing that happened to me was right after I got my MFA, I got a Fulbright um, to Cote d'Ivoire. And I had never lived in Africa, you know, and I wanted to see as much of Africa as I could. So technically, as a Fulbrighter, you know, you're supposed to stay in that country. But I left, you know, for the maximum amount of time I could leave, I left. So um, one of those trips that was just actually to come back to New York and uh, see my then husband. And the layover from Abidjan to New York City was in Casablanca. 
So I decided to just, you know, get another stamp on the passport and extend that layover for four days. And during that four days, I took the Marrakesh Express down from Casa to Marrakesh. And it just blew my mind that there were so many different Moroccos, you know, even between Casablanca and, and Marrakesh and that one initial trip. It was it was like there were two different planets, you know, and so I began to go back. And one of the first times I went back, I took my two year old daughter and we had an amazing time. And I began to take her and then I had another kid and we would go um, every other summer, at least sometimes it was every summer. And every summer we had a whole different experience. You know, we went to a different city in Morocco. And um, I often tell people, and I'm very serious, like, in a lot of ways, the kids would grow up there in the summer, but I would too, Um, you know, very much so. Um, Morocco is kind of like an abusive spouse for me, because it's um, the kind of place where particularly if you're a woman traveling alone or traveling alone with children, you get the best and the the worst of you get both sides of Moroccan hospitality. There's quite a patriarchy there. People are very suspicious of women traveling alone, but also a lot of people are really hospitable. And when you know when the kids were little, when they were like babies, people would just grab them from me and kiss them. You know, <laughs> people would just you know they would haul our water for us, and it's just an, an amazing place. It's full of stories, Morocco is, you know, and that's the other thing that kept taking us back. Um, I think one of the last times we went, unfortunately, the Sahara had started to become more depopulated because of climate change, you know, and I I learned so much about that. One of the side trips, though, I went without my kids one of those times and went to Mauritania. I knew I couldn't take them there or I, I could have, but I, I wouldn't have. Um, it was a really hard trip. When I got back to Morocco, I was very sick. There was one ATM in the country. It wasn't working. I had to be chaperoned to the bank because I was a woman, you know. The streets there are made of sand. There are no paved roads. So I was hosted by a couple of anti-slavery activists, and one of them introduced me to a family of slaves. And I spoke to her through translator I was speaking French to her and he was speaking Hassania back to me kind of thing. She had a harrowing story. It's not unusual that, you know, slavery in Mauritania is brutally enforced. It's a kind of a brutal case system, case-based system. And she had escaped slavery with her eight children. All eight of them were completely different colors because her master had leased her out. Um, and... I said, you know, what What can I do for you? Um, you know, she was living in this tent on the edge of the capital city, and she said, just tell my story. Please just tell my story. So I sought to do that with this novel. And, yeah, and so from there, you know, the rest is kind of writing history at wow. this point. <laughs> wow, this fills in so many gaps for me. This is so interesting because of the story that you just told there are there are so many touch points in the novel in the story of Surya. Is that how we say her name? Yes. yes. So Surya um, has been um, in slavery, and she's she escapes, and it, it is at a bank, actually, or a sort of an accountant. Um, 
And of course, even you speaking about your two-year-old being picked up and in a fond way, but we see a reprise of that action as the pivotal action in your novel. And then uh, also all of these dialects intersecting, French, Hassaniya, uh, Darija, is that the other one? Are those um, Ar- Arabic dialects? Is that right? yes, yes, yeah. yes? So you had an actual calling from this woman you met to tell her story. Yes, and a few other features of Mauritania are that first of all, it's really hard to even get there. Um, I kind of snuck in with a tourist visa, but the government understandably does not want people to report about slavery there. They kind of want to pretend that it's not happening. They didn't outlaw it actually until 2008. And you can count on probably two hands, the number of cases that have been successfully prosecuted against slave masters. So I felt I felt compelled to tell it for that reason as well, because one thing that blew my mind, too, is that there's only one television station there, and it is state-run, not much radio there either. And so you have a population of people who sort of believe what they are being told about slavery, and even the slaves themselves often believe that this is the will of Allah that they are enslaved, you know? And so it's really interesting. One of the people who I interviewed said to me, well, you know, there's all kinds of slavery. And even in your country, you might think maybe some of the things you do are slavery. And and I thought, well, (laughs) there is, you know, it is true that truth is subjective, but I think it is objectively true that brutal slavery is kind of wrong, you know. Um, and so I I did feel really compelled, um, particularly by that sort of attitude of pushback t- to the idea that slavery is wrong. You know, I felt compelled to tell this story of just how wrong it really is. So for so. sure. It's so interesting that you bring that up too, because as exotic as this locale is, nonetheless, there are s- serious through lines with her story and Shannon's, um, whose you tell in a in an alternating narrative throughout the novel. But then there are also thematic through lines with your other novel. And so I would say um, to anyone who might be slightly hesitant because of the the introduction of dialects of Arabic or um, interesting, unusual locales, that really we're talking about some very universal, unfortunately, themes, such as the intergenerational Black experience of trauma, right? Um, moral relativity. And another would be the, the limits, uh, but also the possibilities of personal choice in a, a world whose forces tend to crush it. Um, yes. And so I, yeah. I guess I would I would bring it back to... The fact that you made this choice to tell this story, it feels at once like a real departure, but at the same time coming back to what you know. Yes. And, you know, I hadn't really realized it until I finished the first draft of this one that I told yet another story in like a diptych with two different voices. But it was kind of similar in the sense that 
in a way, you know, even in 2022, my other novel set in 1955, but even now, women are constrained, but only in different ways, you know. So um, Shannon, the other character in the novel, is she's facing a lot of existential angst, but she's facing some really tangible constraints in that she's burdened with student loans. Um, she's struggling with infertility. She has to get married because she doesn't have dental insurance. And these are all, in a lot of ways, constraints that are informed by gender to some extent. And so though she's not facing this harrowing life, you know, of slavery and its aftermath, she is dealing with her own troubles in it's funny. During the editorial process, people wanted to sort of take sides. And generally, people want to side with Surya because Shannon, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say, because it happens in the first chapter that Shannon takes Surya's child. But I think, you know, she she's Lando Calrissian. She's got problems of her own, you know, <laughs> you know that line from Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. She's got around um and where the moral relativism comes in yes yes and you know her story came from a much more intensely personal place because before I ever had kids I adopted this whole cosmology about what birth would be like and I thought oh I will give birth in a pool of water and Bambi will come out of the forest and whisper in my ear. That is not at all how it happened. They were both C-sections. And it took me years, 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 Yael, to not feel like a failure about that. I, I think it wasn't until I had my second kid that I was like, oh, okay, you know, I think you're their mother. Like, I think <laughs> you can just let all that go because you're really their mother now. Um, and it was just because I was so busy at that point, you know, and, and could no longer think about that moment. But I spooled that out kind of to the nth degree in my head. And I thought, well, what if you came by a child in some really crazy way? You know, how long would it take you to feel like, a proper mother. And it was healing for me to write this, really, because I, I think what I learned in writing, and, and of course, as I was writing, my children were getting older. And I think parenting is in every act that comes after that moment of birth. <sighs> I, I want to call it like the birth industry. I think it does such a disservice to women because you're told, you know, in all the months leading up to this birth, that that's going to be like this huge <laughs> moment of impact. Like, you know, it's like a meteor has struck the earth. But parenting is everything you do after that. So her her story, in a way, is the more kind of personal one to me, her becoming a mother and owning it and, and is was really important for me to tell as well. If you're just joining us, we're listening to a conversation with novelist Jacinda Townsend about her most recent novel, Mother Country. It's time for a short break. When we come back, Townsend talks with Yael Cassander about motherhood as a kind of credential for adulthood in American culture. This is Interstates. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're listening to an interview WFIU's Yael Cassander did with novelist Jacinda Townsend about her latest novel, Mother Country. Let's get right back to it. You talk a lot about 
the kind of credentialing nature of motherhood and how Shannon feels as though once she punches that card, she will be an official adult. And and just that particular role that mothering plays for the mother, and it's and it's quite ubiquitous in American culture, but at the same time, what short shrift it gives to what a child needs, really. That credentialing is more about filling the mother's needs. Yes, yes. There's a quote at the beginning of the book, um, a little epigraph from David Gibb, who is the father of Kaloran Gibb. Kaloran Gibb is Joni Mitchell's biological child, and she was put up for adoption in 1965. She didn't meet Joni Mitchell until she was 32. And he says, people are born, they are a life, they belong to nobody. And without offering too much of a spoiler, in terms of what you were just saying, I wanted not to ignore the the story of the adoptee themselves. And it was a little tricky. Um, there's a chapter that's told from the perspective of her brain. Um, and that was kind of one way to get around that, um, you know, because she is a, a really young child when she's quote unquote adopted. But then I, it was important to me to offer a later chapter that's told from her perspective as well, because, uh, you know, it's a question. It's a big question of the book is actually the child's question. Like, who who is my mother? What makes my mother? And I, in some ways, gave her the last line of the book for that reason as well. I want to go back to this idea that you brought up of the diptych, and that does tend to be the structure of both of your novels, the alternating narratives between two women. Saint Monkey took place in the 1950s in a fictional Appalachian town in eastern Kentucky and in Harlem. And then briefly, for a very bleak period in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And then your latest novel is set in the present, more or less, and it alternates between Shannon's story, and she uh, is a black woman in Louisville, and then Surya, who's uh, this Mauritanian woman who is escaping slavery on a trek to Morocco. So I'm curious about the fact that in your first novel, the two characters have been friends or rather frenemies since childhood, (laughs) and then their paths diverge, and then they come back together again. In your second novel, the women's lives couldn't be farther apart, but this chance meeting in the marketplace in Morocco forces them to intersect forever. So, Could you talk about those patterns, how that developed and how how fun was that or or how intentional that was? Sure. Uh, Thank you. That's such a good question, Yael. Thank you. So in the first novel, um, and it it, it was fun in both cases. It was a lot of fun in the first novel to write this dreamy kind of bookish girl's voice for, you know, however long I was writing that chapter. And then I would actually give myself a break. I would give myself a day's break. 
and move on to the other voice, which was so angry. And the funny thing is, <laughs> the angry girl's voice came pouring out of me. And I thought, I must be an angrier person than I think I am. You just <laughs> found a good way to um, exercise it. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and it was, um, You know, one of the funny things about that, too, is that the angry girl kind of speaks in this Appalachian dialect that doesn't necessarily belong to me. It belongs to um, my grandmother spoke in that dialect. She was from she was from a more rural part of Kentucky, you know. And so I actually had to make myself a little chart of like, when do you use weren't? When do you use weren't? When, you know, Um, (laughs) yet and still that angry voice just poured out of me. I think by chapter four, I was like, I know weren't by now. I know, (laughs) I know when you use weren't, you know, and even there are words that people don't use anymore that I had to sort of conjure up from memory of hearing my grandmother speak like nary that's a word we don't use and swerp you know so um it was just so fun to write and and I felt like in some sense those two were telling two different very different parts of the same story and they were sort of reporting on each other so there there was sometimes I used a device of letters, you know, um, well, Caroline wrote me this letter. And you know, what she said is just crazy, because, to, you know, so that they got to kind of judge each other. It, it was a way of letting them tell both of their stories that are very much the same story of how they're both constrained in these very different ways. With Mother Country is a little different, because you're right, they don't, they don't meet up and accept at this point, at which their lives intersect. And even then, they never quite meet up until the very end of the book. But with with these two voices, the thing that kind of unites them is that in some sense, they're both incredibly alienated people. One is alienated in a country where she doesn't even, she has to learn how to speak the language even. You know, she has escaped slavery, so she has no job. She has to work in the sex industry for a while. And so she's very alienated and seeking community, which she she finally finds. Um, But I think Shannon, the American woman, is also tremendously alienated. She has parents who kind of all but ignore her when she's growing up, doesn't have many friends. She marries a man who she's not in love with, and she knows that from the get-go, you know. And she has a different ending, I think. She finds community in a different way. But I would say if there's any through line on sort of uniting those two very different voices, it it was that. It was this question in my mind of like, how do each of these characters sort of answer the question of alienation um, for themselves? I get that. That's wonderful. And we'll get back to the role that language plays. Uh, in in a minute. Another real commonality among all of your female characters, the ones who are mothers, uh, the ones who have mothers, is that the mothers are relentlessly cruel. (laughs) (laughs) And there is an unremitting, inexorable (sighs) unkindness that is visited uh, from one generation to the other. And I, I might even have you 
read a passage, Jacinda? Some bad news. Her face was ruined. Her mother had shown her with a chrome-handled hand mirror. Her mother's head dropped in shame as she held it apart from Shannon's face. The scar was a long, puckered thing, the wound running the length of her right cheekbone. They'd sutured it together quickly with old-fashioned staples, and in the mirror, she saw the little bite marks where the staples had been removed. Twelve of them in two neat little rows of six, just like the little French girls in Madeline. She imagined a third date with Vlad and his money, his telling her it was okay, her face was fine, he was just glad she was still alive. Maybe he'd even say something sweet and winning, something like, scars are beautiful because they're proof you survived. A bit of virtue signaling before he ghosted her altogether. Maybe he'd even take one of her unruined hands in his own, expecting the sweaty palm he'd shaken on that first date. But he'd be getting a different hand now, a cold, dry palm. He'd be getting a woman who'd brushed up against mortality and returned with prophecy. She thought how unfair because it was a car wreck and the scar could have shown up in some other less devastating fashion, but apparently the scar had had aspirations just like everyone else. It could have settled for being a crick in her neck, a bruise on her forehead. It could have left her completely untouched. It could have been the cute chipmunk running across the road at the moment of impact forever lodged in her cerebrum to sadden her. The scar could have announced itself as a crushing case of PTSD that would leave her white-knuckled every time she got behind the wheel of a car. But no, the scar needed her. It had seen how optimistic she was, and for no good reason. Her parents had been so awful to her, just as their parents had been so awful to them. And even her maternal great-grandmother had been an unmaternal icebox of a woman, and so on and so forth, up a line all the way to Eve. Every damn thing, every mother's fault. Not one of these women had left her cheating husband, pursued that machinist job at the factory, or left the state in a loaded-down station wagon, destining herself and her progeny for freedom. These women had stewed in their trauma, passing it down through the generations like the seeds of an heirloom tomato. And Shannon, who had become the scar's aim and target, simply did not deserve any better. This scar needed her like a glob of molten glass it would blow into spiritual shape. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like mothers are, we are unjustly exalted. And that exaltation, in a lot of ways, harms us because um, what we have is this cult of perfect motherhood, you know? I love, one of my favorite movies has become The Lost Daughter, that Ferrante. Oh, I love that because it's so real. I mean, it's, um, I, I think this every Mother's Day, Ma- Mother's Day just makes me so angry, actually, because I think people have strong feelings, actually, about it, including mothers, ourselves, you know, and nobody's allowed to say it on Mother's Day. You're supposed to kind of take your chocolate and be really happy, even though everybody's kind of messed up the kitchen and you're going to have to clean that up, you know, <laughs> Like, here's my one day to relax, but no, that's not even possible, right? But but I feel like, too, the, the cult of perfect motherhood kind of makes us all, it, it, we deem mothers as potential saints. 
at the same time, we make it almost impossible in the United States for mothers to be at peace, even if they were saints. Um, I get really exercised thinking <laughs> thinking about it. Um, and, and just even as in terms of characters in literature, women in general, we don't allow them to be unlikable characters. We sort of decide that if they're not likable, they're not investable. You know, whereas you rarely hear a critic saying of a male character, um, you know, I just I didn't like him. So I don't want to read this anymore. I mean, but we expect that of of female characters, just as we in some ways expect it from real women. Um, so I, I love to poke holes in this trope of the perfect mother because we are we are not. But we're we're just as lovable for our imperfections, you know, and I think we're allowed. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you've really honed in on the mother, the imperfect mother and um, the woman's story in, in this book. You know, you, you gave us fair warning. You said this is going to be mother country. Okay, people. Um, it, we had some fathers in the last one. And when you talk about giving men a pass, yes, one one character in your previous novel cut up his wife and put her pieces in all of the far reaches of the house from chimney to basement, um, but gets out of jail and uh, is embraced. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. However, there are other characters, female characters, who are morally ambiguous characters. And those, to me, are, are your most interesting characters. So Shannon is, um, is yeah, I'd call her morally ambiguous. She, uh, this is one of the two women who are your protagonists in Mother Country, Shannon, the, the Louisville native, who, and it's not a spoiler because it happens on page 15, steals a child. Straight up steals a child. Like, how is steals, this okay? Steals is a strong word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, let's see. She borrows a child. <laughs> she borrows a child. She assumes that the child doesn't have, um, that the child is homeless and, or doesn't have a family. And then she uh, uses her cultural seniority to to manufacture some documents to um, abscond with said child. Um, this is, uh, yeah, pretty... Steals. Yeah, okay. steals. <laughs> so anyway, but what's wonderful, you could, you know, in our current culture, you could just say, oh, this is hideous, this is heinous, and we see the effect on the other mother. We see the horrible morning and the, the dark nights of the soul uh, in the wake of that event. Um, however, we also see the evolution of Shannon. And so that's what's the most compelling aspect of that book, if you ask me, the way she grows. Thank you. Thank you. It, it, that was definitely a thing that happened on subsequent drafts. That was not a first draft move um, at all. But I, I mean, it's strange to have come into writing this from the perspective that I was not going to take sides was kind of interesting because I think it's a, it's a story um, 
the, you can, you know, you get to page 15 and I think you've taken sides, right? <laughs> you know? um, and so when I decided that, that I was not going to take sides, I had to really sort of develop backstory um, and in some ways develop front story as well, because she, even aside from those sort of societal constraints she's facing, there's a lot of existential angst. I mean, she's struggling with her infertility, but she's also having other people sort of put that struggle on her, um, which is a lot. And so she does, you know, um, thank you for saying that, because I, I wanted it to be a trajectory of growth for, for Shannon in a lot of ways. This is Interstates. It's time for a short break. When we come back, we'll continue with Yael Cassander's conversation with novelist Jacinda Townsend about language as a form of connection and the role of artists in the pursuit of social justice. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Let's get right back to Yael Cassander's conversation with Jacinda Townsend. There's an important theme that that really captured me in this most recent book and and in the previous one, it has to do with the language, um, or more broadly, code. Mm. So I see I see the universe of of both stories as one that is dark and wants to chew you up and spit you out, and in the midst of this universe, you create characters who cope with it in different ways, some more successfully than others. The coping strategy a lot of time seems to have to do with learning a code or a language. We see it in this novel, Mother Country. First of all, you drop us, the reader, into the desert where the geography is unfamiliar the language is unfamiliar, and you don't give us that much help. You throw us into all of these words that we can look up, we can figure out by context because they're in Darija, they're in Hassania, they're in French. And so you help us understand what it's like to be Surya, who is wandering in the desert without language, without papers to prove her citizenship, and then you show how Surya copes by learning the language. And the first real love story, the first tender story that you share is the one where the young boy is teaching her language. And I was hoping maybe that, Jacinda, you could read that passage, which is so tender. Surely. Odwan spoke to her only in two-word sentences, but he helped her mop the floor with a towel in the evenings after dinner, and he walked her around the Medina, showing her when to buy cooking oil, soap, and the vegetables the family needed. She didn't yet know all the words for gratitude in the new dialect, so she was relieved to be able to express it in housekeeping. Her fourth day in the house, Odwan taught her phrases. Which way is the spice feller? The price for fish is too high. I feel like a drink of tea. Then he taught her words that stood by themselves. Hot, arm, 20, elephant. On this, her fifth day, he talked to her about music. 
She didn't feel attracted to Adwan so much as connected to him, but the connection in this new land of her immediate future felt essential. The seventh day, Adwan taught her how to make different tenses of the verbs of his dialect. After the lesson, she went down to the kitchen to cut chicken for a tagine, and she was pleased while pulling off a severed wing to find that she could now say that she existed and would continue to exist further. Edwan put his lips to hers, and the warm moisture of his kiss stirred an anger she hadn't felt since the camp at Majek. She leaned into her consciousness and fell. He had no idea who she was. She would work hard to speak his pronouns and discern his beef, but he'd never know the first window of her mind. The times that I see tenderness in this pretty harsh world of yours, whether it's on um, one side of the Atlantic or the other, it's happening because of the transmission of language. And there's a connection happening, whether whether it's Surya learning the dialect from Adwan or later learning the letters from her employer and just getting more access to the world, getting connection, feeling grounded, having more power. But I also see it on Shannon's side, the time that she is finally kind of at peace is when she gets that job reading to the blind. Was that intentional, this this idea? I mean, as a writer, obviously, language is your currency. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, it maybe wasn't intentional, but in researching this novel, I had so, so many moments and so many experiences not being able to connect with people I wanted to be connected with because of language. Um, you know, in some ways, it's kind of the ultimate point of connection, or it can be the ultimate gulf. You know, there were times in Mauritania I had access to translation, and then times I didn't. And I cannot tell you, Yael, how many times I desperately wanted to. Um, I there was a there was a point. There was one summer we went, and I worked with. Uh, a group, it was a church group who were sort of helping helping people who were in the sex trade in Morocco because they were African migrants. And if in, in so in Morocco, it's extremely hard to get a work visa. And so what happens is women who end up there invariably have to go into the sex trade, you know. Um, and so this group was doing work for them. And I could not talk to them. And it was a really interesting experience. I was able to do things that were helpful to them. And I guess some people would argue that that's the ultimate kind of point of connection. You know, like one thing we did for them, we gave them pedicures, you know, which is a way of communicating through touch. And it's a way of of literally touching people in the most intimate of ways. But to me, that is not as intimate as language. It's not as intimate as like knowing a person's mind and and hearing their experiences, you know. So if anything, it was just maybe a bit of personal knowledge that made it into the book of what that feels like, how terrible it feels when you can't 
speak to other people, you know, <laughs> because I've also had the experience in Morocco of not being able to do it for weeks on end. There have been times when we were in um, some little tiny town and nobody even spoke French and we could only speak to ourselves, <laughs> you know? So um, I, it, it, it's, it's a bizarre experience, right? You're there to get to know a country, but you can't really connect to people. Um, so I, I, I did profoundly know what that felt like and how terrible it felt. Clearly, this novel in particular, and probably a lot of your, your writing, your literary work, is motivated by uh, your values and this one, uh, you you mentioned the backstory of of wanting to tell the tale of the woman who had been in slavery. Um, I'm curious about your choices in your life, in your career. Um, your devotion to social justice has manifested itself in many ways. In Bloomington, you were our leader of Black Lives Matter. You also played a role on the Monroe County School Corporation uh, School Board. And of course, you are pursuing your social justice goals through your your writing of literature. Um, how do you balance that? Do you have the conviction that fiction can save the world? I do, actually. I think that um, artists are unique in that it's a job requirement to step out of our skin into someone else's skin and then come back and transmit that person's experience to the rest of the world. And I think that um, art can serve. And for me, I just don't make art that doesn't serve. I just can't anymore. I, you know, and, and I think that that's why is that um, I do see it as a calling. I think that when you go to a country like Mauritania, and you see someone in this circumstance who can't tell their story, I think it behooves you to tell it. And that's what I felt. I, I feel that the artist can't avert their eyes from a situation. So yeah, it's it's something I'm entirely committed to. Um, the novel I'm working on now is actually about a woman whose father is killed in the late 80s by a policeman, and she changes her identity and moves from California to Kentucky. And it's about grief, you know, that's kind of its overarching thing. But it's also very much about the impact that police brutality has on not just the individual themselves, victim, but also their families and their communities, and it just ripples out. So I am, I am really trying to write in service. Yes, thank you. Wow, fantastic. And, you know, I, I personally believe that um, people are more moved by by art than they are by a screed or a manifesto. Um, that yes. that if, if you yes. can create empathy, then you're you're most of the way there. Yes. Well, this has been the most wonderful time. Yael, thank you for having me on. You are so welcome, Jacinda. Congratulations. Thank I can't you. wait to thank see you. the encomiums come through as they have already begun to. And, thank um, you. I am, I am deeply honored by having had the chance to speak with you. Um, Same here. Yeah. Thank you. 
Novelist Jacinda Townsend spoke with WFIU's Yael Cassander about her new novel, Mother Country, published just last week by Grey Wolf Press. Currently a professor of creative writing at the University of Michigan, Townsend was an associate professor of English at Indiana University in Bloomington. Her debut novel, St. Monkey, was published in 2014 by Norton. I want to end with a poem by Yale Kamara. It's called Mother's Rules. For my mother. One, if you see me praying in the living room, never sit in front of me. You are not God. Two, when we go to a restaurant and I don't know any foods on the menu, never order me a meal that is spelt with silent letters. I came to eat, not to explore. Three, you didn't make food. No, God did. You cooked food. Watch your English. Watch your faith. Four, your Creole is offensive. When you speak, you sound like Shabaranks. Your accent is funny, but keep practicing. It is the only way we will be able to gossip in peace while at the supermarket. Five, try to learn the language of your lover and his family. They could be smiling to your face and getting ready to trade you for six goats and three mules during your first trip to their homeland. Six, if anyone stares at you for too long, more than five seconds, start speaking an imaginary language while maintaining eye contact. They'll be the first to look away. Seven, consider the consequence of purchasing human hair wigs, secondhand clothing, and used furniture. Maybe you will feel beautiful and also save money, but you never know whose bad luck or misfortune will be sitting on your head, body, or in the home in which you sleep. Buy what you can truly afford. Eight, your father's Muslim, so you are too, 1989 to 1993. I am Christian, so you are too, 1993 to 2012. I am Catholic now, but you keep praying, 2012 to present. Nine, you laugh at me now like I laughed at my mother, like she laughed at hers, like your daughters will laugh at you, and I will live long enough to forgive your folly. Ten, just make sure to pray. Amen. That was Yeli Kamara reading her poem Mother's Rules from her book When the Living Sing. Yeli Kamara is a Sierra Leonean-American writer, educator, and researcher from Oakland, California. In addition to When the Living Sing, her books include a brief biography of my name and the forthcoming What You Need to Know About Me, an anthology of youth writings on immigration. She is also the current Poet Laureate of Cincinnati. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Paskash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Jacinda Townsend, Yaley Kamara, and Yael Cassander. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music and Airport People. All right, let's go somewhere else now and listen.
You've been listening to Robins in a Tree, early February in Bloomington, Indiana. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.